This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Welcome to Husky Heights, where we talk about all things University of Washington women's gymnastics. Since our last episode, the gym dogs have competed against Utah, Oregon State, and Arizona. So we'll be covering the highlights from those meets and sharing our thoughts on how the season is shaping up so far. First up is the meet against Utah, which happened on January 28th. Krista, you attended this meet in person. What was it like? Yeah, so it was a great meet. The score overall was a 196.350. We unfortunately did lose the meet, but Utah is a number four rated school. So we kind of went into it, you know, expecting unless there was some major upset that um, we most likely weren't going to take away the dub, but it was a pretty good meet overall. I would say the scoring was, you know, pretty tight, but as we've mentioned in previous episodes, we actually like tight scoring. It encourages the gymnasts to do better and work harder for those scores. Uh, I really enjoyed in particular watching Olivia Opegard on bars. I think she did a great job. Didn't really have too many like career highs or uh, season highs in this meet, but overall what I saw was a lot more consistency on at least three events. Unfortunately on beam, Skylar Killa Wilhelm had a very uncharacteristic break in her routine, but the rest of the lineup did pull through. Lana Navarro had an excellent routine with a 9-9. Kennedy Davis came away with a 9-8-7-5. Brenna Brooks had a 9-8-0, and she is in the leadoff position, so she probably would have scored a bit higher in a different area of the lineup. And Dia Moody came out with a 9-8. So uh, overall, I'm really impressed with the beam team's ability to step in when, you know, we have an uncharacteristic mistake. And another big highlight was floor. So on floor, Lana Navarro had the best routine I had seen her do up, up until that meet. She came away with a 985, but I thought that was a little low. Um, I thought it was more of a 9875-99 type of routine. Her chest was just a little bit low on the last landing, but overall it was I was like jumping in, up and down in my chair and actually somebody in front of me at that meet even turned around and said like, oh, she deserves a 9-9 at least um, because it was a 9-9-9-8 split from the two judges. Overall, it was a it was a great meet. And I do have some notes about just overall, like some of the fan engagement things that Utah has. So for everyone's background, the University of Utah has probably the largest gymnastics fandom in the country, I would say, probably up there with like maybe Florida and LSU and UCLA, I would say are probably some of the largest. And they've been building a following for decades. So some of the things that I kind of took notes on for how they were, you know, engaging with fans during the meet, they did have a an autograph table at the end of the meet. Theme of the meet was like characters. So of course that got the the kids really excited. They did a really great job, like introducing every single gymnast, including University of Washington gymnasts. So I thought they just did a great job with like the production of the me and I actually took like a lot of very thorough notes and I'm sending it to University of Washington Athletics because I think we can learn from, you know, our other Pac-12 schools and some of the things they're doing really well to grow a following. And one of the reasons we started this podcast is just because we really want this program to grow 
we want more people to come to meet. One thing I did want to mention is UW Gymnastics used to have, I would say, a higher quality of fan engagement. Um, when I was younger, probably seven, I think, they did have signings and they even had, I believe this was 2013. I think that's when it ended. I think that was the last, the last year they had it, but they had little trading cards of the gymnasts and they would have this long table where all the gymnasts were sitting down then at the end the score or not the score cards the trading cards would be there but they'd only have a few out for each meet so you would have to go to every home meet of the season to collect the whole team and it had their picture and then where they were from I think their favorite skill and then also the skill that was hardest for them to learn And so they've had that, they've had that level of fan engagement and just a little fun collectible and something to also get you to go to all the meets. And I remember that was really fun. So I wish they could bring something like that back because it's it's not unheard of. They've had things to engage fans. So if they could just bring that back, that would be awesome. Yeah. Utah did have like these terrible collector's cards. They kind of came in the cardstock with the um, perforations in them and they had something like that. And I thought that was really unique. Like I would absolutely be collecting them as like a full grown adult. So I can't imagine how excited children would get over that. I agree. I think we're working towards that since COVID. There's been, you know, obviously like a dip in fan engagement since COVID, but it's coming back up. We saw like at the UCLA meet. Let's move on to the following meet, which was Oregon State. And that was a home meet. Oregon State scored a 197.3 and Washington scored a 195.2250. We had a few strong events and some that weren't so strong at this meet at home against Oregon State. Vault was okay. We had a a season high for Amara Cunningham with a 9.875. That was a tied season high. And Skylar Killow-Wilhelm got a 9.8 on vault. Bars, we got a 49.125. Skylar Killow-Wilhelm tied her career high, actually, with a 9.925. So that was a very strong event for her. And Lily Tubbs got a 9.85, tied her season high. And Dia Moody got a 9.825 and also got her season high. Beam was where we had a lot of trouble. We only scored a 47.925. And wanting a 49, that's definitely far below where we want to be. But two of the stronger performers on that event were Kennedy Davis with a 9.85 and Brenna Brooks with a 9.825. We had two falls or two routines with falls during that rotation. And in college gymnastics, you can count, you count five scores out of six. So that meant, unfortunately, we did have to count one of those routines with a fall. And Skylar Killer-Wilhelm actually had two falls in her routine, which is very uncharacteristic for her. So the other fall was by Hadley Roberts. Just one fall for her, but of course, unfortunately, that means her score was low, and we did have to count that. And lastly, on floor, we had a great floor rotation to finish off the meet. Amara Cunningham had a 9.925, so an excellent score for her. And two win got a 9.9, which was a career high. I would say a highlight for me was definitely two's floor routine. She's doing a much better job at getting her chest up on the landings and she's controlling her power. So for her first floor routine, I think she scored a 9-5 because she went out of bounds and she just had difficulty controlling her power, which is pretty typical for Washington. A lot of times we recruit like really great power gymnasts and they kind of struggle in their first couple meets just staying in bounds and especially because the previous meets were podium meets that you know adds a little bit more bounce so I was really happy her improved so much in just a couple weeks to score 99. 
So moving on to Arizona, which was another away meet, we scored a 196.750, which was our highest of the season. Arizona's score was a 196.8, so that was only a difference of 0.05, which is basically just like an arm wave in a dismount. It was a very, very close meet. This was a home meet for Arizona, and typically judges are a little bit more lenient to the home team. I think that might have been a little bit of the case in, at this meet. We were on track to get a 197 until the last rotation, which was unfortunate. But before we talk about that, there were a few really good highlights. So Skylar Killa Wilhelm tied her season high with a 9925 on bars. Taylor Russin also tied her career high on bars. Taylor Russin tied her career high with a 99 on bars. And Dia Moody tied her season high on bars with a 98.25. Really quick, I just want to talk about built-in deductions because I've been noticing this a lot on Dia's bars routine. In the broadcast, they mentioned that Brenna likes to give, quote, tough love corrections. So my tough love correction for Dia would just be to work on her pack. So maybe Kaya, could you explain what a pack is? I have a hard time explaining it. Yeah, so a pack or a pack salto is its full official name, just most people call it a pack, is a transition from high to low bar. So it's a way to get your body from the high bar to the low bar, which is what a transition means. And you start facing the low bar. So normally, if a gymnast is going for a dismount, they're facing away from the low bar. And so you're facing towards the low bar, you swing forward, let go, do a, it's more of a layout than a tuck or a pike, but it's usually arched because then you have to flip and look forward to grab the bar with your hands. Then you can kip out of it or continue on with your routine, but it's just a way to get from high to low. Yeah, and it's pretty common in NCA. Thank you for describing that. So Dia, one of her feet is like a little bit turned out, and then she has a, quite a bit of leg separation on her pack. And it's gotten like a little bit better. Like I can see her legs are getting closer together, but it's just like a very obvious built-in, what we call a built-in deduction. So a built-in deduction refers to um, a deduction that tends to happen every time a gymnast competes a skill. Theoretically, they would be able to do it perfectly, but the way that they've been practicing or the way that they learned it allowed them to execute it incorrectly. So, for example, with a pack salto, for some reason, when Dia competes her pack salto, most of the time she has her legs apart and one of her feet turned out. I'm sure that her coaches can see that deduction, but for whatever reason, they just weren't really able to correct it and to fix it. And they just had to move on with her training and she learned other skills. And obviously, Dia is a successful gymnast. Built-in deductions happen, and that's just a part of being a gymnast. You're not going to have every skill perfect. And I would say another built-in deduction in our bars rotation would be Brenna Brooke like separation that she has in some of some of her skills, which she is working on. So I can tell, you know, sometimes she really nails it, like her legs are pretty close together, and then other times she has a little bit more difficulty with the skills. So I don't know if I would necessarily call that a, so much of a built-in deduction because it's clearly like a mistake, and she's working on it, but these are things that really separate us from being like, you know, a 197 plus team and being, you know, a 196 or 195.5 plus team. And 
I think those are just things I'd like to see improve, especially since we've seen them like both Dia and Moody, especially after we've seen Dia and Brenna for, you know, seasons now. Um, Dia is a sophomore and Brenna is a fifth year. Just like to see them make those corrections and improve on those little things. In addition to the typical, you know, improvements that we see on bars, like better dismounts and better handstands, like those are always improvements that we make, but some of those more foundational skills and improving on those can make a really big difference. For example, on Oklahoma's bars team, I would say if you have one built-in deduction, you're not making the line because that's just the caliber of team that they are and the caliber of bars team that they are as a good comparison. One thing on built-in deductions is it's not strictly the college coaches because they're getting these gymnasts after 15-ish years of club gymnastics and it has a lot to do with the club coaches and how they teach something. I talk about Nadenov's bars a lot. Nadenov is a gym in Washington where Jordan Childs is from. I adore the technique they teach on bars. It's really pretty. Every time you see a Nadenov bar worker, their bars are just so, so pretty. So if a coach from their club taught it one way, and never corrected something like a little arm bend on a giant or something like that, they've probably been doing giants since they were 10. So it's really, really hard to relearn and reteach your body something when the muscle memory is doing it with the built-in deduction. I always appreciate your perspective on the club level. <laughs> so moving on to vault, we scored a 49.250, which just as a reminder, a 49.25 on each event would give us a 197 score. So this is definitely the type of rotation that we want to keep having in the future. Amara and Skylar both scored a 9875. For Amara, that was tying her season high. And for Skylar, that was her season high. And Brenna got a 9850. She does a pretty difficult vault that has a blind landing. So 985 is a great score for her. And Emily Innes stuck her Yurchenko full with a 9825. That was a career high. And you had a comment on her block, Kaya? Yeah, that was one of the nicest blocks I've ever seen her do. The first time she was in the vault lineup, I believe she got a 9.6 or a 9.5, somewhere around there. And I'm just happy that it's improved so quickly. The She rose off the table after the block and it was just really nice. I was like, wow, like that's come a long way in just a few weeks. I was really impressed by that. Me too. And seeing her warm up um, at Utah, I just noticed that her her vault had improved significantly since week one. So I'm just really impressed by Emily, which I'm definitely going to talk about her beam routine, her exhibition beam routine shortly, but I'm really impressed by Emily overall. So moving on to floor, this was overall another great rotation. We had a 49.275, which was right on track again <laughs> to go for that 197. Amara Cunningham got a 990. And Skylar also got a 9.80, and that was tied for her career high. Hadley Roberts got a 9.8250, which uh, that tied her career high. And then Hugh and Emily are contributing week after week on the floor routine. I forgot to mention it earlier, but Hugh Wynn made her floor debut a few weeks ago. She's really coming on strong. She's consistently been in the lineup, and Emily's also been contributing consistently, and just seeing them improve week to week has been really fun. And they're also really improving their performance quality, which is something we touched on in our first episode a lot that we wanted to see more of. So we heard on the broadcast that Brenna Brooks is really working with 
everyone in the floor lineup to work with their eye contact and engagement with the audience. And I think they're going all doing a really great job there. I think it's really important that Brenna, as well as the rest of the coaching staff, is working on things like engagement and facial expressions because those aren't necessarily things that you would think about if you were watching a gymnastics meet live or if you were watching a broadcast, but they do add up in the score. And judges have been told to be harsher on what's called artistry deductions. So things like performance and engagement with the crowd. So these are little things, comparatively easy things that the coaching staff can do to improve Washington scores. If they think it's the worst artistry they're going to see all day, they could take two tenths off just because they don't think you danced enough and connected with your music enough. But if it's just a little bit, they could just take a 0.05. But that is two and a half tenths if they're taking that on every single routine. So it does make a difference when you're thinking about the team score. Yeah. And speaking of artistry, I see that the team is kind of flashing the 10 signs a lot for Amara Cunningham's routine and her landings and her tumbling are really great and her jumps and leaps are great. I think she needs like one or two more like elements in her routine that just kind of have that wow factor, like some sort of macro series because her choreography can sometimes come across like just a little bit flat or like it's kind of hard to explain. But I think when you look at, you know, especially at the UTLA meet, it was very obvious to me when you look at, say, Jordan Child's routine or Selena Harris, like they have these really interesting elements that, that add a little bit extra. And I know that's necessar- not necessarily Amara's style, but I think like a, what is that thing called that Jordan does where it's like a jump, like a dive? It's a dive, dive roll, roll, yes. Like it's adding something like a dive roll or something that makes you say, wow, like I think would take Amara's floor routine from like a 9-9 to 9975 type of routine. I think that good choreographers know the gymnasts that they're working with and they know their style. I think that no, you can tell she's comfortable when she's performing. So I'm glad to see that. But I definitely agree that it could use a little bit more spice, a little bit more wow factor. I think Amara and Brenna, I'm not I'm not 100% certain, but I think they choreographed this routine. I think Jeffrey Langenstein just needs to push her a little bit out of her comfort zone and maybe just add a little bit of choreography that's, you know, a little bit more different from what she's used to, to kind of give that wow factor into her routine. Because I really want to see her score a 995 and she could go for a 10. I mean, her landings are amazing. She has a great form. It's just, I think the judges are just being picky because she's kind of lacking those extra elements that make it like a little bit more difficult or just make the just take her routine to the next level. And I know it's all subjective, so it's hard to explain why that would make it a higher scoring routine, but that's just what judges tend to favor. Yes, the choreography can absolutely make a big difference. Uh, a similar comparison is former UCLA gymnast Vanessa Zamaripa, who was phenomenal, scored a lot of tens in her career. Valerie Condos Field said that Vanessa was actually a terrible dancer. I don't know if she used those words exactly, but the choreography was done in such a way that you would never really know that by watching, just because it highlighted her strengths. She also had a reverse worm in her floor routine. So if you know the worm, is usually done on your stomach where you kind of undulate your body. <laughs> I think that's the best way I can describe it. Well, Vanessa did that on her back and it got the crowd going every time. So just putting something like that in Amara's routine could really help to take it to the next level without necessarily needing some super flashy choreography. Just to put it in perspective, I pulled the code up fully in front of me. The reason we can't pinpoint something is because there are 
five different areas where you can take off for artistry. You can take off because they don't have a dynamic enough performance. You can take off because of their quality of expression, originality of choreography, quality of movement, and then poor relationship of music and movement. So a judge could take for any of those. And that that wording is super subjective, which is a big part of judging. But that's why we can't say it's this one thing, because... Any judge, the judges are just literally going to go off of vibes and vibes only when they're taking those deductions. And we say this because we love her her gymnastics and we uh, want her to make the most out of her fifth year. So moving on to Beam, it was a 49.025. And I spoke earlier about how the depth in our Beam lineup really came through. That was the case in this beam lineup as well because Lana Navarro who's normally a beam staple had a pretty significant wobble in her triple series and Kennedy Davis also had some wobbles in her in her routine as well. Skylar Killa Wilhelm unfortunately fell again and this is very uncharacteristic for Skylar. She didn't have a single fall in all of last season and she was in the all-around all of last season. We're not quite sure what's going on with Skylar. I expect this is something like kind of a mental block which is unfortunate maybe you could speak to that I was a terrible beam competitor I can tell you that I didn't fall on a routine until my freshman year of high school and as soon as I fell on beam at one meet the floodgates opened and I think I stayed on beam once a season after that So, but I also know that I was a terribly mental gymnast. That's my own issue. But it is, it is just hard. Once you just get a little less confident in something, especially on something like a theme, where the only way you're going to stay on is if you're confident. I always tell the gymnast that I coach, think you're going to make it. Because if you're expecting to fall, you will fall. If there's just that tiny voice in the back of your head saying, like, you can't do this, you fell last week, that can be really hard. I'm not saying that's definitely what's going on, but I also, I just relate to falling on beam. So I hope Skylar can get back in the zone on beam. And hopefully they were just little one-offs where it was like, this back handspring didn't feel right. I don't think she fell on a back handspring, but I hope it is just not nerves, because I always feel bad when people have to deal with nerves or mental blocks. Obviously, she definitely like has the skills to nail that routine. I mean, she's gotten a 9-9 plus on that routine. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not a coach. I don't know, you know, what obviously this is hopefully something they can work on um, and helping her gain some consistency. But it's going to be difficult because there's only two days between or I guess three days between yesterday's meet and Monday's meet against Stanford. And I guess it'll be really interesting to see if Skylar's in the lineup or maybe they choose to rest her because we do have the depth on beam and so you know I would say if they need to rest her that's that's okay and I hope she gets the chance to improve and get back to her normal self because she's you know really needed in this lineup. I hope that it'll just take one hit routine and then it'll just she'll have full confidence in herself because I think all of us here are 100% on board with Skylar is fully capable of hitting a beautiful beam routine. Oh, she's but... capable of getting a 10 on beam. Like she's been oh, yeah. close a few times where I'm like, oh, they could they could give that a 10. So yeah, we have full confidence in her. But we've also seen, you know, watching gymnastics a long time, you see gymnasts go through mental blocks and it's difficult to watch. And, you know, you always just want what's best for them. 
And I would like to point out literally the greatest gymnast of all time, Simone Biles, struggled with mental blocks and she still does. Gymnasts are human. The best gymnasts are human. Washington's best gymnast, Skylar, is human. Simone Biles is a human. So we don't fault Skylar at all. We wish her the best. She's an incredible gymnast and we have full confidence that she will be able to hit her beam reading perfect. If there's any coach who can coach her through this, it's Jen Llewellyn. I mean, we are a beam team. Jen Llewellyn is very much a beam coach. So we've seen the improvements week to week. So I think she'll she'll get through this. A large part of beam, especially when you have as good gymnastics as Skylar does, is just the mental side, is believing you can do it and stay on the beam. So I just wanted to clarify that she's not balking on skills. But one of the amazing things about that beam rotation was the comeback that we had in the late side of the beam rotation. So right before Dia Moody's final routine, um, and just to recap, so we have Brenna Burke in the leadoff position. She got a 9.875, very high score. And then we had, you know, Kennedy and Lana's wobble and Skylar's ball. Um, but we had Morgan Bowles get a 9.825, which is awesome because she's been in and out of the line bo- lineup. And then there was just this long break in the the rotation where we were waiting for scores to come in. And we were messaging each other like, who's in this final position? We had so many people it possibly could be because we have a lot of depth. And it turned out it was Dia. And we're like, of course, Dia. Like, normally she's in the beam lineup. And she goes, and she goes with a career high 9-9 routine. It was super solid, rock solid. And just the mental fortitude that that must have taken, knowing that she needed to nail that routine. And also, shes I don't think she's ever been in the anchor position. So to pull that out in the anchor position with so much pressure, I mean, the meet literally came down to the very last score. The difference of the meet was 0.025. And Dia could not have done a better routine in that moment. So I just massive credit to Dia Moody. So excited for her. Like that was just the routine of her life. So at least it ended on a very good note. So let's take a little bit of a pivot and talk about the leotards because we are very excited that we've got new leotards this season. There's been four total. And in the last three meets, we've had what we call the Sousa Leo, which is a leotard that actually features the Suzalo library. Let's talk about that one first. I love it so much. It's <laughs> beautiful because it's a beautiful leotard even without knowing that it is kind of referencing the Suzalo library. And I mean, the Suzalo library is beautiful. They've taken their, I mean, people have weddings there. They've taken team pictures on the staircases and it's not obvious to someone who doesn't know the library that it's supposed to be the library I think is what makes it so perfect because that when you put it side to side with the picture of the front of it you're just kind of mind blown it's so pretty I can't say enough good things about it so let's describe it for our audio listeners so it's like a purple like kind of v-shaped bottom half and then on the top it's like black mesh with crystals in the shape of Suzalo Library And then it has these sleeves that are like pointed almost. I don't know what to quite call the sleeves, but I've never seen that before in NCAA. So I feel like we're going to be a trendsetter. Everyone's going to have these same types of sleeves. And also, I just realized, I don't think we've described for our audience how important leotards. From time to time, we will be deviating and talking about the fashion of gymnastics here and there. But it is a very exciting part of the sport because, you know, we have a lot of different uniforms we rotate through and so much variation, so much 
play with. And I would like to add, personally, the reason why I love gymnastics is because it's the perfect combination of artistry and athleticism. And I think that leotard design is a really crucial component of that artistry section of why I love gymnastics. So it definitely can influence how a team feels, you know, Gymnasts are always on social media talking about their new Leos, and I think that having a leotard that they love can really put a lot of confidence in them, and that will help them with their routines. And leotards are something that UW in the last two years, but especially this year, has improved upon a ton. Under old coaches, they would get two new leotards a year, one for like media day, so you'd usually see a new leotard in their promo picks, and then... One for Pac-12 championships, but we've gotten the last four weeks four new leotards. And I mean, gymnasts are people. So when you look good, you feel good. Just like if you get a new outfit and it's fun, wearing a sparkly leotard is so much fun. I think also one of the things that these leotards do a really great job of is just the school pride. Like they all have a touch of University of Washington pride and they're really unique from other teams' leotards. So moving on to the Title IX leotard, which as far as I know, it is the first Title IX slash women's empowerment themed leotard. I think Sacramento State had one, but I don't think it was Title IX inspired. I think it was just female empowerment inspired because they had the Ruth Bader Ginsburg inspired leotard. But this one straight up said Title IX on it. So I don't think Title IX, the words have been on a leotard ever. So just to visually describe it, it is like a purple base with a white, like large color block stripe, like across the chest with a finer, like yellow line. And it's kind of like the old school Washington gold. So it's like more yellowy. And then on the front, it has the UW W and on the back it says Mighty Are the Women and then on the hip it says Title IX. A lot more sporty than our other leotards but really unique. It sort of looks like a jersey style like it's trying to play on football jersey which honestly I don't mind. I feel like people have feelings about leotards that are trying to look like football jerseys but I think this one looks really nice and I really liked the touch of the Mighty Are the Women on the back because I know Krista, you feel, well, you were the, you feel passionately. I do too, now that I know this information, because I learned through you that the UW fight song was Mighty Are the Men until 2018. Which is extremely late, considering yeah. how, like, when Title IX passed, like, 50 years ago, and it took that long. And yeah, I was arguing with some trolls about, like, because they said, oh, it should always be Mighty Are the Men, because it's, like, mostly used, used at football games. And I'm just like, no. It's for the it's for the entire university. University of Washington is fifty six percent female, so you can deal with saying "mighty are the ones," even though I think it should be "mighty are the huskies" or "mighty are those" because I think it sounds weird to say "mighty are the ones" personally. But of course, it should be a gender neutral term in the fight song. But anyway, yes, the fight song only changed to "mighty are the ones" in twenty eighteen, which is really late. So I was really excited to see the "mighty are the women" on the back of this lead her because honestly. University of Washington just needs to do better by its women's athletics. I think other teams are other, even SEC schools are just doing a much better job, which you wouldn't expect, but I really feel like the SEC as a whole is like more feminist or more female sports friendly than Pac-12, which is, that's just my opinion, but just based on what I've seen in terms of like the promotion of women's sports. So I was really happy to see this leotard because I think it's very empowering and important. It's important that we keep talking about gender equality in sports and I I think it's easy to just do another it's not easy but it's 
a lot of a lot of teams are doing um, pride leotards, which is amazing. Like I think that every every team should have a pride leotard. But I think it, it's groundbreaking to have female empowerment leotards that are about women's equality as well, because there's still so much work to do for both gender equality and LGBTQ plus equality. It's just cool that UW is hopefully being a trailblazer in terms of having a Title IX Leo. I think UCLA or Pitt was the first one to have a Pride Leo, and now a lot of teams have a Pride Leo. So it's not like one issue is more important than the other. It's just really cool that UW was the first one. And then last, but certainly not least, we finally got our Skyline Leotard, which... There was a warm-up leotard that came out last year that had the Seattle skyline on the back. And, of course, everyone was tweeting at them saying, please make this into a full competition leotard. And we finally got it this week, which was really exciting. So that one has a black bottom. It also has kind of that V-shaped waistline. And then the top is white. And on the back is the skyline. And then there's a W in the front. We seem to be leaning into the W in the front, which I don't mind. I like it. It's better than having like words stretched across, which I never really like because like it stretches out weird. So I like the W's. But yeah, overall, it's a really pretty leotard. And I put a poll up on our Instagram and people are saying they like the Suzalo Leo, Suzalio the most. But people seem to love the leotards this year. I'm seeing lots of tweets that are like, Washington stepped up its leotard game. And we didn't mention it earlier, but I have to say it was kind of like a running joke. Like Washington's old leotards, like we got made fun of a lot on on Twitter about our old leotards. I think like the, especially the really yellowy ones were not the greatest. So I'm really happy about the fact that we stepped up our game. It really makes us look polished alongside these other teams like Utah and Florida that, and UCLA that have these really creatively designed leotards. I think it makes us look like a more professional team. So I'm really happy about them. They definitely deserved it. I forget who told me, but one of the alums, I was tweeting about UW leotards at one point, and they told me that some of the Leos that they were still wearing, the elastic around the legs had completely stretched out, but they were still wearing them because those were the only Leos that they had in all of the correct sizes for that team that they had. And so it's just so great that they're getting new leotards. I'm so happy about it. Yeah, I'm all for sustainability and everything and reusing things. But there's one like leotard, I I call it like a starburst kind of leotard. It's like, it's all black and it has like the mesh black kind of cutouts, like in the shape of a star kind of. And they had, they wore that one last year. And I was looking back at old photos. They started wearing that leotard in 2013. So they wore the same leotard for like nine years, (laughs) which is too long. Um, It still fit great. I really miss those older kind of like more athletic style leotards but nine years is a bit too long (laughs) even if you're not wearing it every weekend because that leotard was probably only worn nine times out of me or maybe 15 times if they wore it twice in one season but I don't know how many of you have ever found an old rubber band like a really old rubber band but even if you're not using it if you pick it up it'll tear immediately just because elastic dies over time even if you're not using it and I just can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be to have nothing guaranteeing that the leotard is not just going to ride up in every single way. Like that just sounds so awful. Yeah. Like that one purple, it's like all purple, the V-neck leotard that it's from Ozone that they debuted last season. You can already see the fabric is starting to get stretched out. And so, yeah, it's, it's a bummer that they don't seem to last that long. I feel like the older ones lasted longer. Yeah, I think I was talking to you about this a couple of days ago. The sublimated fabric versus Mystique fabric. Mystique is the shiny one and then 
sublimated is when they have a screen print onto matte fabric, the shiny material that is overlaid onto, I think it's lycra or spandex nylon. I don't know. I'm not a fabric person, but whatever they overlay onto that matte material protects it a little bit more. But the straight sublimated fabric stretches out so quickly. It pills like the second it touches Velcro. So Mystique is definitely the way to go, not all sublimated. Because I know Utah had to stop wearing their Skyline Leo because it fit so poorly and because it stretched out over three washes and like three meets that they wore it in. My favorite. <laughs> so the next two meets for UW are both against Stanford, who is currently ranked number 24. The first one is this coming Monday, February 13th at 4 p.m. So it may have already happened by the time you list. We'll see. And that one's happening at Stanford in Palo Alto, California. And then the next Stanford meet will be at home in Alaska Airlines Arena on Monday, February 20th at 2 p.m. Pacific. And a few of their gymnasts to highlight from Stanford are Anna Roberts, who is a freshman. She is definitely someone that we have looked forward to seeing. So I'm super excited to see her in Seattle. She's from Seattle. So hopefully she'll have lots of people there cheering for her. In 2022, she was second in the all-around at Level 10 Nationals, so she's very much a high-caliber gymnast, and she was first in 2021. She has a stunning Yurchenko one-and-a-half fault, so we look forward to getting to see that. And also from Seattle is Maddie Brunette. She is a fifth year. She has been a consistent three-eventer since her freshman year, so we look forward to seeing her. Chloe Widner is a senior. She's a strong all-arounder. She's had a few consistency issues so far this season, but she's capable of putting up big scores on all events. And lastly, I would like to highlight Ira Alexeva. She's a redshirt sophomore because she's had quite a few injuries since the start of her college career. She was actually born in Russia and moved to the U.S. when she was seven. And because she was born in Russia, she was able to compete for Russia at the 2018 World Championships and she won a team silver medal with them. And as I mentioned, she's had quite a few injuries, so she's missed most of her previous college seasons due to that. And this year she's competing on bars and beam, and she has the potential to score nine nines on both of those. You forgot to mention that Ira had 90 bone chip removed. That's what it was. I couldn't remember where I saw that. (laughs) Bone chip, yeah. How do you think you would have that many and still have a hip? At that point, is the entire, like, bone and socket just smashed like yeah (laughs) I can't even believe that but yeah that's okay yeah so the next two meets are Stanford and then our next podcast will cover both of those meets and recap those hey it's Krista I just wanted to give you a quick update on the Pac-12 standings nationally so nationally Utah is ranked fourth UCLA is ranked sixth Cal is ranked seventh Oregon State is ranked twelfth Arizona State is ranked 20th, Stanford is ranked 24th, Washington 25th, and Arizona 26th. So thank you so much for listening, and you'll hear from us after the next two Stanford meets. Bye!